you realize that as a session, uh, we are in a very unique time in the life of our church and God's providence uh, for reasons that we've shared with you at the recent annual meeting and uh, shared with you in other ways as well. And so uh, this is not our normal sort of routine and practice. Typically, as we preach through series, we are uh, working week after week, and there's not big spaces in between. So for both of us, Pastor Fisher and I, we, we find ourselves in God's providence in this time. We're hopeful that that will end soon, as God is pleased, but we just uh, ask that you would bear patiently with us as you sort of try to shift gears week after week between studies in First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, and now Going back to John 17, where we're studying the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So we, we do indulge your patience and ask that you would uh, just continue as God would give grace to simply follow along and shift those gears uh, week after week. We are in John 17 this morning, and when I say that, we're doing one more sermon by way of introduction. And, and again, this would normally pass very quickly, but we've been extending this for those reasons. So You'll find that in uh, your pew Bible on page 1073. You'll remember as you turn there that we began our study in John 17 by actually looking at the statement in Hebrews 7 where we were told that he is able, Jesus, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he, that is Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. That is for his people, for those whom he is come to save. That was a sort of an introduction to this great truth that we have here in John 17, that Jesus is constantly interceding for his people now before his father at his right hand, both by his finished work, his blood shed for us, and in the prayers that he offers for us even now. It was John Owen, we noted, who said, while he was in the world, he gave us the best estimate and the best representation of his present intercession that we are able to comprehend. And this is his prayer in John 17. So John 17 is really telling us what it is that Jesus is praying for us now before his father's throne. And then later we noted the importance of the fact that Jesus spoke these words aloud so that his disciples could hear them. And so that in God's providence, they could be recorded for us. We noted that this prayer in John 17 is rooted in his teaching. One writer says that the most important prayer in the Bible follows the most important teaching in the Bible that we have in John 14 through 16. And so he prays what he taught. It also is a prayer that is preserved for us because he did speak it aloud he wanted his disciples to hear it. He wanted them to write it down so that we would hear it as well. And it does reflect, we noted, that Jesus alone of all the other religious leaders in all of the other world religions is unique in that his ministry is one that he takes on of prayer for his people. We don't read that of any other religious leaders. Only Jesus continues to intercede and pray for his people. What a great comfort these words are to us to hear our Savior praying. He prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious. 
and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not even notice it. He's praying that our faith may never cease and that we might come out victoriously in the end. So many saints down through the years, we noted, have been blessed by the words of John 17 as they understand that Jesus is continually praying for us faithfully. We remember John Knox, the great Scottish reformer who on his deathbed asked his wife, Margaret, to read aloud that place in the scriptures where he said to her, I first cast my anchor. It was his greatest comfort to hear the words of Jesus again as he was dying, praying for him. And then most recently, we spoke of the text in James where James encourages us to persevere in prayer when he reminds us that the fervent and effectual prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Not only were we reminded that we are to persevere in prayer as followers of Jesus Christ through Christ, our faithful high priest, but that the fulfillment of that verse, I believe, is really seen in the person of Jesus. Who more righteous, who more fervent, who more faithful than Jesus who prays so faithfully for us. And so we were reminded that these find their fulfillment again in Jesus. And we saw how he displayed that truth in the life of Peter. When he said to Peter, Peter, you're going to be sifted like wheat. Satan has asked permission that he would do that, and I've granted it to him. And yet Peter had no idea that this was coming apart from Jesus' revelation. But remember the words of Jesus to Peter. I have prayed for you, Peter. This is an example of the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. How the Lord interceded for his people. What he did for Peter, when Peter knew nothing of his danger, he is daily and hourly doing for all of us who believe in his name. So this morning we're building one more sermon, promise, one more, on an introduction of John 17. Uh, to look at really a doctrine, uh, to do some theology, as I told someone on Friday night, we're going to do some theology this morning. Theology is a word that simply means the study of God, and all we're going to do this morning is to study the person of God in the person of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We're going to look at the theology of Jesus as the second person who took on human flesh, that he might be our faithful high priest. We confess that he is fully divine and fully human. Not 50% God and 50% human, but fully God and fully man. And that doctrine actually appears throughout our text as we read it this morning. I'm going to read John 17, and as I do, I want you to listen carefully and begin to ask yourself some questions. Who is it that is speaking? Is Jesus speaking here with reference more to his divinity, or is he speaking with reference more to his humanity? That really is what is before us today. They are deep waters. I trust that God will give us grace to tread through them, to remain above water, and to understand the blessings of this great doctrine that we have before us. So stand, if you will, with me and as I read John 17, the whole of the prayer again, I would ask that you would follow carefully along and listen for those things as you give your attention to this, the reading of God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven 
And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just, just as I am not of the world." I did not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. It is precious to us as we hear the very voice of our Savior in these words. Pray for us and for all who would believe in him. And so we would ask your blessing now 
as he now speaks through the preaching of your word, by the blessing of your spirit to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So who's praying for me? Who's praying for me? Thank you. That wasn't what I meant, but thank you. <laughs> that question can rightly be asked as you come to John 17. In fact, as you heard it read in, in its entirety, there may be places where you see more. And perhaps some would argue you see most the words of Jesus as the Son of God speaking to his Father. But there are places where commentators, and we'll see this very clearly, say that Jesus is here speaking as well as our mediator in his humanity, praying to the Father as the one come and taking on human flesh for our sake. Certainly the very fact that he is himself praying using a voice in a body and kneeling before his Father is a reflection of his full humanity. Now, this confusion is not new, for there are many such places in the gospel accounts where we read statements that may confuse us at times with respect to who it is that is acting, as it were. And again, as I enter this, I realize that these things are often difficult, and they are the deep things of our faith. And so this morning, there really are no points. We're throwing out three points or four points. All we're doing this morning is a little bit of history and theology. We're studying God, who he is, especially in the person of his son, God the Son, and his nature, or natures, both human and divine. We read as our call to worship this morning those great verses from John chapter 1, which reflect a profound mystery. And the word, John wrote, became flesh, the word, the eternal logos, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These indeed are deep waters of our faith. But they are very important for us, with his help, to understand and to grasp so that we might walk that path to which God has called us to walk, of doctrinal integrity and purity, and ultimately for our encouragement as well. Now, the early church was no different in its struggle to wrestle with this understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. People saw him. They saw his human appearance and yet as they saw his human appearance, they heard words from him that taught them that he is not merely just human, but he is also God the Son. He himself is God. And so throughout the first five centuries of the early church especially, there were all kinds of debates and discussions regarding the person of Jesus Christ. And a pattern sort of developed in the early church, as even today it develops, because this is the way truth is clarified and, and foundations are built. The clarity of truth always seems to rise out of heresy. That is, someone comes along and teaches something heretical. 
You, you know it right away. You hear it. The teaching sort of goes on and on. And then there's a response that is necessary. Even in our own day, we've seen many of those things as people have gone through the years over different views and understanding of the scriptures on a variety of issues, the Trinity more recently, or the new perspective on Paul, or things like that that we've had in years past. Heresy arises, false teaching arises, and then the church is forced in returning to the scriptures to establish and to clarify the truth once again. It's always the story of the church, and it was that way in the beginning. It was even that way as we read the New Testament. Paul is actually responding in several of his letters to some early forms of these heresies regarding the person of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John is as well. If you carefully read through the verses of 1 John, the five chapters that he writes, you will see John dealing with some of these early heresies within the church regarding the person of Jesus Christ. For instance, in John, 1 John chapter 4, we read these words. Beloved, he writes, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For there are many false prophets who have gone into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus that does not confess Jesus in this way that he has come in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You know what John was fighting in those verses? An early church heresy called doceticism which is a word that means appearance of. It has the appearance of. And what they taught as they wrestled with the person of Jesus was that Jesus was clearly God, but he only had an appearance of being human. He wasn't really human. He only appeared as such. That was an early church heresy that John, even as he writes before 100 AD, is dealing with in the early church. Because this issue of the person of Jesus and his uniqueness as being fully God and fully man was such a deep theological truth, a, a mystery really, that the church often uh, had to wrestle with it through the, again the heresy that was coming into the church. And that continued over the course of the early church. There would be councils that would be erected or called to meet who would address through their bishops the elders of the church address these various heresies they they all have names I won't give all the names to you but some of them you may have heard but I'll tell you what each of those heresies just in a overview would have been modalism is one that is really important in the early church modalism basically says that we overemphasize the oneness of God, that God is one at the expense that he is also three persons in one God. And so modalists believe that God displays himself, for instance, in the Old Testament as the father. In the New Testament, he now shifts and displays himself as the son. And then once the coming of the spirit, he changes again and he expresses himself in the spirit 
But he is never at the same time father, son, and spirit. That's modalism. That still exists today. If you've ever been to a Unitarian church, you know that they teach modalism. That God is. And, and, and oneness Pentecostals today, some famous ones on TV, teach modalism. That God is not three persons in one God, but that he is three persons expressing itself differently at various points in history. That's a heresy. That is to be rejected. We believe that God is one God, yes, but eternally existing in three distinct persons. Another very famous one is Arianism. Arianism, after the leader of that movement, Arius, teaches that Jesus is the first and greatest of God's creation. He's a creature. He was made. He did not, as John says in John 1, eternally exist with the Father from all time eternity, but rather he was created. Now they exalt him because he is the greatest of the creations of God, but the bottom line is that he's a creature and therefore he is not God. Now you've heard this if you've ever answered your door to a Jehovah's Witness, because they are Arians. They don't believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And so to save yourself a lot of time and a lot of headache, just focus on the person of Jesus and who you believe them to be. Believe him to be. And you'll shorten your conversation. Because you don't need to speak any further because they simply deny that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. Now there are others that teach that the divine is united with the human body only and they deny that Jesus actually had a human soul. That is a heresy as well. There's another that teaches that Jesus actually possessed or was two distinct persons in one, each operating independently. At one point, the divine person would act. At another point, the human person would act. And so it's not two natures united in one person. It is two separate persons somehow united together in the person of Jesus. And then there's another that taught that both natures, human and divine, existed before the incarnation, but that following the birth of Jesus, there was only one nature, the divine nature. The human nature, again, like doceticism before it, was merely an appearance of him being human. Now, there are many other errors. I'll spare you the rest of them. But the church, effectively, by 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, had really dealt with these very, very clearly. And certainly, 55 years later at the Council of Constantinople, it was really written down in what we call the Nicene Creed. We say that in the evenings, occasionally alternating with the Apostles' Creed. And when we say that, here's what we say about the person of Jesus. And this language is intentional. You can hear in it a desire to deflect or to reject, I should say, the various heresies that were still very prevalent in that day. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, that is one person, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, 
who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. There it is, the full divinity, clearly spoken of, and the full humanity of Jesus, together in one person, two natures. Well, these errors would persist in some ways and need to be addressed finally again in what I think is the definitive statement on the person of Jesus that we find in 451, where in modern-day Turkey, the Fourth Ecumenical Council, the Council of Chalcedon, met together. And one of the primary focus of that meeting was to once for all give a very clear definition of the person of Jesus as we understand him revealed in the Holy Scriptures. It is, I believe, the gold standard. What they did cannot, I believe, be improved upon. Many believe that I among them. Now, it is worth knowing, and so I'm going to read the definition. It's not long, but I want to read it, and I want to ask that you follow it. This is the doing of theology that they did back in 451 that has survived all of these years as the gold standard of our understanding of the uniqueness of the person of Jesus, fully divine, fully human, joined in one person. This is what they wrote. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, not the appearance, but a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regarding his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regarding his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. It's that last part that speaks, and the whole of it, that speaks of what we call in theology the hypostatic union. The union of these two substances, if you will, these essences of divinity and humanity in one person, In this way, Jesus stands unique in all of history. There is none like him before, none like him after. And he continues to be now, having taken our humanity glorified now, into heaven itself as a forerunner of us who will join him as he has gone before us to make a way. 
Christ, as one writer says, is truly human and truly divine. He is not one at the expense of the other. And because these natures are not confused or mixed, he is not a third kind of being, neither truly human nor truly divine. The natures are united in one person without separation or division. So Christ is a single person or subject. He is not the joining of two persons, but of two natures in one person. He may act according to his divine nature or according to his human nature, but the same Christ, the one Christ, acts no matter whether he is exercising his divine attributes or his human attributes. I hope you were able to follow that carefully. The unity of the natures in the one person means the attributes of each nature belong to the one person. Christ's divine nature, for example, does not have blood. But the person of Christ does because a human nature belongs to him. That's why Luke can write in Acts 20, as Paul gives his farewell address to the Ephesian elders of whom we are reading in 1 Timothy, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care for the church of God, which he, Jesus, obtained, or God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. If you have a Geneva study Bible, or I should say a Reformation study Bible, if you look at Acts 20, 28, it has this very curious sentence. This phrasing that he purchased or obtained with his own blood is remarkable in the way it acknowledges that the blood of Christ is the blood of God, who has no blood, because it is the blood of the one person, Christ, who is both and always fully God and fully man. R.C. Sproul once said that he used to have a little bit of a scruple of conscience when he sang the great hymn that we will close our service with today by Charles Wesley. You know the words well. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He said, I struggled when I first sang that. How is it that my God has died for me? But he is one person, he going on to say, with two natures. And when the one person acts, he can be said to do so according to the distinctives of either nature. While he is acting in his death on the cross according to his human nature, for God cannot die, 
Wesley is nonetheless correct in saying, how amazing that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. You see, the real key to understanding what Chalcedon did in helping to clarify and solidify our understanding about what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus is found in those four negative statements. The two natures are joined in one person, first without confusion. Without confusion. The Lord Jesus is not what you get when you mix blue and yellow together and end up with green. He is not a third thing, the result of a missing, of mixing a divine and human nature. He is not Superman. That's not who he is. There, are no, there is no confusion of the natures, no intermingling of them, so that what you have is a new and third thing. He is fully human, fully divine, without confusion. He is without change. Secondly, in assuming human flesh, the divine logos, the nature of God, did not cease to be what he had always been. There was no change. Humanity was simply added to it as a second nature joined in one person and had no substantial change at all upon the divine son. So there was no diminishing or lessening of who he was as God as much as there was no elevating or you know, making stronger his natural human nature because he was also divine. Without confusion, without change. Thirdly, without division. The two natures of Christ do not represent a split in the divine person. Jesus is simply not half God and half man. When I was first converted, that was the most startling thing I came to understand. I literally believed in the early part of my Christian faith that to understand who Jesus was as divine and human meant that he was 50-50. That is a very common understanding. He is 100% divine, 100% human, and without division. He's not schizophrenic, divided. He is one person possessing two natures. And fourthly, without confusion, without change, without division, and finally, without separation. The union of the human and divine in the person of Jesus Christ is a real organic union, not merely a relational partnership, but a real organic union of two natures in one person. To be our savior, he had to be both fully God and fully man, united together in one person. I'll simply commend to you to read our larger catechism, 38 and 39. Why did he have to be both God and man together in one person? The answers are very helpful and instructive, but for the sake of time, I will allow you to read them. Both natures, suffice it to say, are absolutely necessary to be our Savior. And these natures are perfectly united in one person, Jesus Christ, and they are united without confusion, change, division, or separation. 
He is unique. He needed to be unique to be our Savior, to be our sufficient and faithful Savior. Now, why is all of this important, you may be asking. I hope you see why it's important. We have the heresies of the early church still present today. They're still around in various forms and ways. You just need to search them out and read their theology and you'll hear them. They never go away. We're always defending this doctrine of the person of Christ with two natures joined together as Chalcedon rightly defended in 451. And so the first reason why this is important, unrelated really to John 17, is simply this. We need to maintain doctrinal faithfulness. We need to be able to have an answer for those who would bring error and teach heresy. When you speak to a Jehovah's Witness, you need to go to the person of Christ immediately. Don't get lost in Jehovah, who Jehovah is, the world, and is he made it, or the judgment that's to come. Just simply go to Jesus. Talk to them about Jesus, as I had opportunity this week to talk to someone at the car dealer who was a Jehovah's Witness once he found out I was a pastor, and we talked briefly, just briefly, about their view of Jesus and the Bible's view of Jesus. We left smiling, happy to have conversation, but no minds changed. But the error is still present. It's still there in his life and so many others. As you read the Bible, ask good questions about the Bible. The Bible isn't afraid of questions. God is able and has answered them all in his own word and by his spirit. And so questions like this to flesh out this doctrinal understanding. Who upholds the cosmos? Who upholds the cosmos? Christ does, by virtue and according to his divine nature, because only deity sustains the universe and all that has been made. Who fell asleep in the boat? Christ did, according to his human nature, because we know that God does not need rest. Psalm 121. I neither rest nor slumber nor sleep. He's always there, doesn't need rest. Who healed the sick and delivered people from demons? Christ did, according to his divine nature, because only God can do miracles. Who walked on water? Well, Christ did, according to his divine nature, because it was a miracle. But he also did so according to his human nature, because he had a body like ours, and he literally walked on top of the water. Who grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? Christ did remarkably, remarkably Christ did according to his human nature because we know that God doesn't change. He possesses all wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in himself. And yet, according to his human nature, the Bible can say that Jesus Christ from his infancy grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You see, it's the hypostatic union, a union of two natures in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that allows us to understand what it is the Bible is saying. Who died and who rose again? Christ did, according to his human nature, because only humanity can die and be restored to everlasting, indestructible life. And that's what has happened for us who believe in Jesus Christ. We distinguish Christ's two natures. 
but we do not separate them. We distinguish them, but we do not separate them. A slight aside. I am, as you know, chairman of the committee that examines men who come into our presbytery and want to be pastors. And I can say with regularity that one of the exceptions we hear all of the time is an exception to the forbidding, according to our standards, of making images of Jesus for teaching, for Sunday school. Our Sunday school curriculum does not use images of Jesus for the reason that we have just said throughout this entire sermon. You cannot, you cannot divide his humanity from his divinity. You cannot say, I'm going to simply draw a picture of Jesus in his humanity because you can't possibly draw him in his divinity. But we believe it's wrong to do that. But people take exceptions to this constantly, all the time. It's not an exception. We ought not to take it. We don't do it because we can't divide Jesus. He is one person, two natures joined together forever. And he can't be separated. And were we able to picture Jesus as the people who saw him pictured him, as they saw him physically, there's only one response that we could have. You know what it is? To fall down and to worship him. And that is clearly forbidden because we cannot worship um, idols of our own making, a picture. So we, we can't do that. It's, it's the practical application of these doctrines. Secondly, and finally, these doctrines are important for our comfort and our assurance. This is one of the great things we will learn in John 17, our assurance of faith and our encouragement in it. And so much has to do with the answer to this question. So who's praying for me? Who's praying for me? Jesus is praying for me. Who's Jesus? Fully God, fully man. In his humanity, he prays for me with understanding of my nature, having experienced all that he did while he lived on earth. He knows my infirmities, my weaknesses. He had, according to Hebrews 2, to be made like his brothers that he would one day present to his father, that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of his God. And so in his humanity, he prays for me, faithfully interceding, knowing my struggles. But he does so as well because he is fully divine. He does so in his divinity with all power and all the attributes of God. You might say, why does God the Son need to tell God the Father or pray to God the Father? Because he is our faithful and merciful high priest. He is always interceding by the presentation of his blood and the presentation of all of our needs and all that we have need of. All of his attributes coming to bear in his prayer for me, his power, his knowledge, his wisdom, his understanding, all that he possesses as God, he's praying for me. And he presents this before his father and his father delights to hear the son and answers him. It is for our comfort and our assurance Brothers and sisters, I have heard this before, and perhaps you have said it. And I know of what I speak as you go through these times in your life, and as I go through times in my life, where you feel, and if you were forced to say it, you would say it, I believe and I feel that God has abandoned me, that he no longer cares for me, 
Many of us have struggled with that in the wrestling with our sin and the wrestling with the providences of life. Does God ever really care for me? Brothers and sisters, Jesus, who is fully human and fully divine, is God. And he cares for you. He cares for you. He knows what you have need of. Don't ever let those words come out of your heart or your mouth that God doesn't care for this Savior who always lives to make intercession for us is God who cares for me. We've always said during this series that we take great comfort, as someone said in the beginning, who's praying for me? You are good, and I'm praying for you. And we take great comfort in that. What a joy it is to pray for one another. As one of our brothers went into his procedure this week, the day before, he said to me, you know, I feel, I feel the prayers of the saints, they work. I feel that comfort, that peace. I know people are praying for me. There is a great comfort in that. And many have told us that and said that to us over the years. But oh, what a joy, what a comfort it is to know that this Savior, this Jesus, fully God, fully man, joined together in one person, one who is fully divine and fully human, who knows our infirmities and weaknesses and yet possesses all power to save and to triumph over his enemies and ours, is praying for me and for you if you are his. Ever let us thank God that the hope of the Christian rests on a solid foundation that we have a divine Savior, and he prays for us. Let us pray. Father, as we tread through these waters, perhaps at times overflowing our minds and our hearts, we nonetheless would desire to grasp fully the depth and meaning and understanding of these things. We want to know Jesus better in his person, fully divine, fully human, We want to know his intercession for us so faithful at every point. Would you grant us these things as we press on in these things, as we seek to learn more and to understand all that you have revealed to us in your word. Bless that word now to us, to our growth and understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.